Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast. If you're new here, hi, hello, how you doing? My name is Lisa Marie and I like to sit down with a cup of coffee and talk about true crime cases. And can I just say, it's absolutely wonderful to have you here with me today. First and foremost, lovely listeners, I do apologise for the impromptu time off in between the last episode and this episode. Unfortunately, I got quite sick. It's also been the school holidays here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But also life has just been so busy that I couldn't commit into producing a quality episode for you. So here's my attempt (laughs) at producing a quality episode for you. Because I think most of them are are mediocre at best. But hopefully I can get back into your good graces and continue to be one of your favourite true crime podcasts to listen to. If not your favourite Kiwi true crime podcast to listen to. Right? (laughs) Please? (laughs) With that being said, welcome to part two-ish of the Pernicious Parent series. And you'll understand at the end why it's part two-ish. But if you don't know what the Pernicious Parents series is, it's a series where we talk about malicious mothers, frightening fathers, and killer couples. And yes, I do like alliterations. (laughs) In the last episode, we talked about Gertrude Benajewski and the case of Sylvia Likens. That episode, one, it started the series off with a bang, but it also uh, brought out some really interesting conversations that I had with you lovely listeners over Facebook and Instagram. So thank you to everyone who sent messages and, and talked about that case with me. We saw a lot of mirroring between Gertrude's early life and how she treated Sylvia and her little sister Jenny in the time period that they were under her care. We saw the projection onto Sylvia that stemmed from the frustration that Gertrude had with her own daughter and just the overall disgusting lack of regard for human life that Gertrude had. And we saw that that's how she was raising her own little monsters as well, with that same lack of regard and torturous nature, and that the kids' friends were just as evil. So something was going wrong in that community. There was so much wrong in Sylvia's case. And the last three months of her life, unimaginable. That's the word for that case. If I had to describe the whole thing in one word, it would be unimaginable because I just, I can't comprehend or I can't understand and I don't know how Gertrude came up with some of her punishments and her torture sessions. I I just can't. So that episode is available if you want to go and check that out. If not, that's fine. Gertrude, we are done with her. She can stay in the deepest, darkest cells of hell. And I hope she is covered in boils and rashes and infections that she can't get rid of. The mother we're talking about this week didn't raise monsters. She was just a monster to them. So with that, lovely listeners of Coffee and Crime... Grab your cup of coffee or whatever caffeinated beverage you need to get through your day and join me as I tell you about a mother who put her heart's desires above her own flesh and blood. Warning, the following episode contains adult language, discussion on domestic abuse, sexual abuse, abortion, child neglect, suicide ideation and murder that listeners may find disturbing. This podcast is recommended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised.
Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson was born on August the 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona, to Danish and English-American parents Wesley Linden and Willardine Engel Fredrickson. Now, her name is Elizabeth, but I will be referring to her as Diane. That's the name she's more commonly known as in this case. And she also starts calling herself Diane, but we'll circle back round to that and as to why she does that when we get there. But yeah, her name's Elizabeth. I'm calling her Diane. Cool? Cool. Wesley, Diane's father, he was a postal master for the U.S. Postal Service. And her mother, Willardine, which can I just say is an absolutely beautiful name. Willardine. How gorgeous. Anyway, she was a homebody, you know, housewife, stay-at-home mum to Diane and her three younger siblings, John, Kathy, and Paul. Now, the Fredrickson household... Yeah, it might not have been the happiest place growing up, but I will tell you now, it definitely wasn't a hellhole and we have discussed worse on this podcast. Now, I I don't say that to belittle anyone's experience in their childhood and what they go through, but I think with what Diane goes on to do, she whines and complains a lot about a life that could have been worse. And I'm just going to say it right now. Diane is a narcissist. Everything has to be her way or she throws a temper tantrum like typical textbook narcissist. And I do not like her. So, you know, she's got that going for her. (laughs) Don't come for me. I'm hoping that after we've discussed this case, you won't like her either. But hmm, maybe I'm just a huge bitch. (laughs) It could be both, actually. So Wesley, the Fredrickson patriarch, he was considered strict and he did uphold conservative values in the household. He never hit his children though. That wasn't his form of punishment. His form of punishment was lectures, which, yeah, okay, that's annoying and that sucks and you probably hear the same one over and over and over again to the point that you can mouth it along with him. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not the worst thing in the world. I, for one, am grateful for the lectures that I received as a kid. And I would take lectures over being beaten, spanked, locked in my room, having food withheld from me. You know, all the different types of situations that we hear about on this podcast that are actually like abusive situations. But I digress. Diane's parents also didn't fold into the views of fashion and needing to wear I don't know, designer clothes, buying the latest and greatest gadgets and gizmos, listening to the top music that's coming out. They also didn't want their daughters caked in makeup and staying out really late. They had a curfew. Again, it's like, that's fair enough to me. That's like good parenting, (laughs) you know, telling your children you don't need to buy the latest and greatest to be great or to be respected in society. You need to put your head down and you need to work hard. But I'm not that cold-hearted. I know that that sucks when you're a kid and you don't fully understand it until you're an adult. And for 14-year-old Diane at high school, where teenage girls are absolute bitches, this was not a great time for her. And she did get bullied. She was left out. She was isolated. And she would be called square, meaning like plain and boring. So what does any normal teenager do then when they're not happy with their parents? They rebel. They go into their rebellious phase. Well, for Diane, that meant referring to herself as Diane instead of Elizabeth. Why should she use the name that her parents gave her? She'll just use the other one. (laughs) Suck on them apples, mom and dad. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I, I use the word rebel very loosely. To me, this is standard teenage behavior. But some of the things that Diane does to rebel, she refuses to babysit her younger siblings. Being the eldest child, this was a normal thing you did. But Diane hated it because she would be blamed if the kids played up or if they broke anything. You know, if you are put in charge of someone else, you are responsible for what happens. But Diane hated the fact that she couldn't punish her siblings. Now, I get it. I have siblings. I've got three of them myself. It's incredibly infuriating when shit hits the fan and you get blamed for something you didn't do. So I get it. I see the way that she kind of phrased this was that she wanted to be the dominating parent over them and punish them. Whereas like for me, if I was annoyed at my siblings, I'd try and get them in trouble with my mum and dad so that they could punish them. Because <laughs> like that made sense. So it's a little bit narcissistic to me the way she worded it, but it's also a teenager going through puberty, you know, going through some issues at school with her peers. So I get it. I get that. Now, during this rebellious stage, which again, it's no different than most other teenagers, Diane started looking at boys and specifically boys that would piss her father off the most, to which I say, girl, (laughs) same. (laughs) Again, it's standard behavior, especially I feel with being the eldest daughter. Because you know that saying that Firstborn sons are the boy versions of their mother and firstborn daughters are the female versions of their father. Yeah, I stand by this. And this was the case with Diane. She was headstrong and stubborn, just like her dad by the sounds of it. And like I just said, I relate to this. I'm the carbon copy of my own dad. And while we have this amazing relationship that I'm very grateful for, you know, we have the same humor, we have great banter, we have a lot of the same opinions, but we do also have some great debates The rest of the family will hide in a bomb shelter if we are ever in a disagreement because we do clash because we are so alike. Now, the reason why I'm drawing onto my own experience, I'm not trying to be a narcissist (laughs) like Diane, but it's just to highlight the fact that Diane's childhood wasn't really that special. You know, like it doesn't stick out uh, in a way that makes me go, oh, yikes, that explains everything or... Uh, you know, looking at at it compared to other criminals and other true crime cases we've covered, it doesn't stick out in any way, shape or form. And now everyone is different. And like I said, I don't want to belittle on anyone's experiences in childhood. But Diane later on, as she reflects on her childhood, she does go like, oh, woe is me. I'm such a victim of like evil parents and they made me the way I am. And the reason why I did such a horrible thing was because of them. And it's like, girl, shut up. No, it's not. You're just an awful person. So yeah, that's why I'm drawing on my experience just to show that it wasn't different. It sucked, don't get me wrong. Being bullied, not having the coolest clothes, not knowing the trending songs of 1969, which, by the way, was Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Figured that one out. So that's quite cool. But it's like, I get that it sucks. But she's complaining about a life that could have been a lot worse. Just my opinion. You might disagree. And I might just be a bitch, but that's just my take on it. And that's why I felt like it was important to draw on my own experiences. Because with true crime cases, you do like to put yourselves 
in the position of either the victim or the the subject that we're covering. That's what I like to do anyway. And to me, it's like this could have been my childhood, maybe not as strict, but it definitely could have been mine. And I haven't gone on to do what Diane's gone to do. You know what I mean? So yeah. Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) Sorry, I'm waffling now. So the boys that Diane was looking to either date or be involved with were older boys. And there are a few things that play into this. So there is the common belief nowadays that younger females who seek or are attracted to older males have daddy issues. Now, according to a research paper by Skintelberry and Fowler that is listed in my resources below, it's a paper called Attachment Styles of Women, Younger Partners in Age Gap Relationships. And it talks a lot about how it's not daddy issues, it's actually just the attachment style of the female. Now, please bear this in mind, this study relates to heterosexual cis biological women, right? So, from reading that paper and then relating it to Diane, because she has somewhat of an unattachment from her own father, there could be a desire to form an attachment with an older male to replace that. But she does have a relationship with her father. She's just a teenage girl. So it could simply be a want to pick a boy that will piss her dad off. So yeah, take it what you will. It could be daddy issues, but it also could be her attachment style. Now, there is another speculatory reason as to why Diane is looking at older males. And that's because Diane does claim that around the age of 11 and 12 years old, her father Wesley started to sexually abuse her. Like Diane actually went and made a claim to law enforcement about this happening at around 11, 12 years old. So that that's a huge red flag on the play. And that could possibly be a part of her childhood where we go, ooh, yikes, that makes sense. Diane was saying that the way that she was abused was in forms of being fondled and having to expose herself to her dad. So her attraction to older men could be because the only sexual interaction she knows is associated with an older male. However, Diane's siblings say that this never happened to them or they didn't see anything like this. That's not to say it didn't happen. I acknowledge that. Wesley and Willardine also say that this never happened. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I acknowledge that. But even Diane herself does recant the allegation and says that she made it all up. That also doesn't tell me that it didn't happen. And I acknowledge that. But we see that Diane tells so many lies and even the crime that we're going to talk about, she lies so much that if she was sexually abused by her father, that is absolutely terrible. That's disgusting and that does change things about Diane. But unfortunately, we will never know the truth because Diane cannot stop lying And it takes away from true victims of sexual abuse by family members or otherwise because it's like, well, how can we believe a kid or how can we believe someone who has been known to lie in the past, even if they're telling the truth about this? It sucks. So I don't necessarily believe it, but I could possibly, I could be wrong. And I put my hand up to that. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about 
uh, Diane and it's kind of split. There are some people that are like, yeah, nah, she's made it all up. And there are some people that are like, hmm, it could explain some things. And I do think it does give a possible explanation as to her attraction to older men. But yeah, I'm on the side that I don't believe it happened. And I think she did just pick older guys to piss her dad off. But that's for you to form your own opinion about. And of course, another reason why teenagers rebel is a way to seek attention. Diane complained a lot about the fact that her dad spent too much time with her mum and that her mum didn't spend time with her. So not only is she feeling isolated at school by her peers, but possibly within her own household by her mum. She doesn't get along with her dad and she feels isolated from her mum. I don't know the finer details of Diane's relationship with her mum, but I do bear in mind that Diane has three younger siblings. And while I don't know their ages at the time that Diane is about 14, 15 years old, I do know that younger kids typically need more attention than older ones. So it's hard to say. And also, we don't know if Diane's just complaining about this. Is she lying? Is she telling the truth? All this information has pretty much come from Diane herself. So it's so hard to report her backstory and believe it or form an opinion about it or like take a stand on the events that happened to her because she just lies so much. But there you go. So not only was she mean to her siblings and referred to herself as Diane and looked at older boys, but Diane also bleached her hair blonde and started wearing less clothes or more fitted clothes, which was like directly against what her parents tried to instill in the household. You know, those conservative, strict values within the household. <sighs> Again, this is not a red flag. It's bratty teenage behavior. She's also trying to be accepted by her peers at school, right? She's trying to fit in with the cool kids. So it's a bit of a mess, but it's standard. So at 15 years old, Diane did start officially dating a boy and he was 16 years old and lived across the street from her. Now, before I get into that, just quickly, the fact that she's 15 and she's dating a 16 year old boy just shows to me that the whole looking at older boys thing was just to piss her dad off. We will come to learn that Diane does take on a few male partners. And while I don't know the ages of all of them, None of them were reported to be like extremely older than her or like outside an appropriate age range. So I do think it was all just to piss her dad off. That's just a little two cents on that matter. But anyway, let's get back to 15 year old Diane. She starts dating a boy called Steve Downs. They were both juniors in high school and they were a good looking couple. Steve Downs was handsome and even though I hate to admit it, Diane was an ugly person but she was beautiful. She was really pretty and that just makes me angry. <laughs> it really does. But they suited each other and everyone thought they were going to be this whole like marrying the high school sweethearts, getting a big old farm and having a million kids type of thing. <laughs> and even though the odds of marrying your high school sweetheart are very low and there are a lucky few out there who do get to marry their soulmates that they meet in school, it's not very likely, right? And needless to say, Wesley and Willa Dean were not very pleased about this relationship. <laughs> and I mean, of course they weren't, but the main reason they weren't approving of this relationship was even though Diane was this rebellious, evil teenager, 
she actually showed academic excellence. She had an IQ of 125, and the average being about 100. Diane was extremely intelligent. She was also a hard worker, which, hello, that's what her parents wanted to like instill into the family anyway. So there you go. It must have worked. But also she was really good at working with her hands. So her parents had high hopes for her to succeed in her future and didn't see the Steve Downs as being someone who was going to help her achieve that. Can I just say that doesn't sound like horrible parents to me, but there you go. Now, interestingly, even Diane's younger siblings didn't really like Steve and they thought that Diane could do better. I don't know heaps about Steve's backstory or why they didn't like him, but I did read that note and I thought that was, yeah, I did think that was quite interesting. But of course, the more backlash to Steve, the more Diane wanted him. (laughs) So they got together, they continued to date, and they both graduated from Moon Valley High School. Now, after finishing high school, Steve had made plans to go and join the Navy. So there are some conflicting reports as to what happens between him and Diane at this point. Some say that they broke up, some say that they put a pause on their relationship, and some say that they actually made vows to each other to stay loyal and they'll be together and they'll beat the odds and be reunited and probably make one of those really cute coming home videos that always makes me cry at two o'clock in the morning when I should be sleeping. (laughs) But honestly, who knows? I don't. I wasn't there. But what I do know is that Diane moved out to Orange in California, which is about five and a half hours away, and she started attending the Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College. Now, I'm not convinced she went there on her own accord. Probably a little bit of influence from her parents there, but it did not last long. Within a year of attending this Baptist Bible College, Diane was expelled for promiscuous behavior. Now, for a Baptist Bible college in the early 1970s, this could mean anything, but Diane was a little boy crazy, and it seemed that once she had a taste of men, there was no stopping her. So while it could mean a lot of things, promiscuous behavior probably meant promiscuous behavior. (laughs) It probably means what you're thinking it means. And I mean, if she and Steve had broken up, then yeah, okay, she's single, she can Probably not appropriate to do it at a Baptist Bible college. But if she had made vows to stay loyal to him, that's really shitty. She's broken her vow. But if they put a pause on their relationship, she can pull a Ross Geller and say, we were on a break. (laughs) Honestly, yeah, who knows? But that's why she was expelled. Promiscuous behavior. And after she was expelled, she had nowhere else to go. She had to go back to Arizona and move back in with her parents. And around this time, who would be back in town but Steve Downs? So they either reunited or rekindled the flame. And at 18 years old, Diana packed up and ran away from her parents' house and moved in with Steve. Oh yeah, she was done with it. And she's like, I'm out. Well, Papa Wesley, he tracked Diane down turned up to Steve's house with a shotgun and essentially told them that if they were going to live together, run away together, do whatever together, they needed to get married. So they had a shotgun wedding, but without the unplanned pregnancy, essentially. And on November 13th, 1973, Diane and Steve got married, making her Diane Downs. And if that name has now just clicked for you and you realize what case we're talking about, Hi, hello, how you doing? Welcome to this episode. 
And if you don't know this case and you don't know that name, get ready because we are in for a ride. So Diane Downs, eh? Another alliteration for me. (laughs) Love it. She did go on to marry her high school sweetheart, even though we've just established that the odds of that happening was very low. She did marry her high school sweetheart. However, it was not the fairy tale romance that everyone wishes their marriage to be. After only two weeks of married life, Diane was ready for it to be over. It was not how she envisioned her marriage to be. There was constant arguing between the couple. Steve was described as, quote, quite irresponsible and immature at that time, end quote, (laughs) to which I say, yeah, no shit, he's 18, 19 years old. They weren't ready to get married. They were forced to get married because they decided they were going to go against Wesley and Willardine's wishes and be rebellious teenagers. So now they've had to get married. It, it wasn't fantastic. It's not an ideal situation at all. Diane felt that she was only used for sex from Steve. He was always away at work. So that caused a lot of arguments. And if he wasn't away for work, he'd be coming home at all hours of the morning, either intoxicated or it would just be really late. He'd have some sort of excuse like, oh, the car broke down or I couldn't get a ride it was just a mess. The couple also accused each other of cheating all the time and their financial situation was a point of contention in their relationship. It got so bad, the arguing between them, that Diane would often go and stay at a parent's house or Steve would go find somewhere else to stay. And this is like within the first month or so of their marriage. So yeah, I will point out, though, that Diane wasn't like this feeble little victim and it was all Steve causing these fights. Like I mentioned earlier, she was headstrong and stubborn and would often start the arguments or at least finish them. So we can acknowledge that this is a shit situation for all members involved. Don't feel bad for her. (laughs) I mean, you can feel bad for her if you want. That's up to you, (laughs) as we've pointed out. I'm a bitch (laughs) and I don't, especially if she's going out there trying to start arguments with him. They just weren't ready to get married. And as a narcissist, Diane was frustrated that things weren't going her way all the time, that Steve wasn't doing what Diane wanted him to do all the time. She had no compromising skills and there was no compromise with her. Now, Diane was also feeling frustrated that she wasn't feeling loved. Now that's a very valid reason to feel frustrated. And of course, everyone deserves to feel loved and to be loved. But the way that Diane sees it, she doesn't want someone to just simply love her. That wouldn't be enough for her. She wants someone to obsess about her and worship the ground she walks on. She wants to be the person that Sandy is singing hopelessly devoted to you in Greece. R.I.P. Olivia Newton-John. But that's what Diane feels that she deserves in her life. And to Diane, who could that person be but a child? A baby who only needs their mother and they will worship their mum and they will obsess about their mum And that's what Diane wants. Now, obviously, Diane doesn't know the first thing about being a mother because it's the mother who has to be hopelessly devoted to the child. I don't know why I'm in such a singy-songy mood, but that is an absolute banger of a song. (laughs) But 
it's the mum who has to be devoted to the child and children take more than they can give. But Diane sees it as the perfect solution to have someone in her life to love her the way she thinks she should be loved or the way she thinks she deserves to be loved. Now, Steve, he's not on board with having a baby at this point. They've just gotten married and they're already having so many issues. They didn't have enough money for the two of them to have a comfortable life. So a child will not make that issue go away. It will make it worse. But without Steve's knowledge, Diane stopped taking her birth control. She threw it away, actually. They continued to have sex, which ultimately, shockingly, resulted in a pregnancy. And during this pregnancy, Diane discovers that she loves being pregnant. And that's because everyone is so nice to a pregnant lady. You get gifts, you get stopped and asked questions. People want to feel kicks. They want to know how far along you are, if you know what you're having, the names, the plans, everything. You get all this attention and it is a feeding ground for a narcissist. And on October 4th, 1974, just under a year of being married, Steve and Diane welcomed their first daughter, Christy Ann Downs, into the family. So about six months after Christy Ann was born, Diane thought she'd give the Navy a go. Now, like I mentioned earlier, she was a hard worker, or was considered to be a hard worker. Now, my take on this, because I'm a bitch, um, I believe that she was a hard worker for validation. Like, she loved to be praised. So that was kind of her motivation to work hard. Now, it's not the worst reason if the job's getting done, but it is narcissistic. And if you don't continue to validate and praise a narcissist, they can become nasty. I believe you should work hard to improve your quality of life, give you a reason to get up every morning, achieve something, provide for your family. There's lots of reasons why you should be motivated to work hard. Not just so you can have a pat on the back, a thumbs up, and a gold fucking star put on your sticker board. But yeah, I'm a bitch. (laughs) So Diane enlisted into the Navy and she lasted all of three weeks before she left. Three weeks of basic training and then she was out. Now one report as to why she left was because she hated it. And if this is the, the truth, if that's the reason why she left, I imagine it was because she wasn't being mollycoddled every 30 minutes because, hello, it's the fucking military. It's hard work and you join to serve something bigger than yourself. Now, another report as to why she left was due to, quote unquote, severe blisters. <laughs> and yeah, I imagine the fitness regime wasn't a casual walk around the park, but... Uh, I don't know, that could be true, that could not be true. These are, again, conflicting reports. I'm just giving you all the things that I found. Diane claimed to have left the Navy because Steve wasn't doing too well with looking after Christiane and was neglecting her a little bit. Now, if that's the truth, that's really shit of Steve. And I put that down to a few things. Now, I'm not excusing him neglecting Christiane if this is the truth, I'm just trying to unpack it a little bit. So number one, Steve didn't want to have a child in the first place. (laughs) I mean, tough shit. You still had sex and a natural consequence of sex is pregnancy. So you've got to deal with it. But also number two, this is the 1970s. It was still very much the woman's job to raise children. So Steve probably didn't have the knowledge or the wherewithal to look after a six month old baby. 
again, like it's not to excuse him and say, oh yeah, that's fine. You can neglect your baby. It's just, again, like I said, unpacking it and trying to understand or come to a conclusion whether this is true or not. Now, Steve claimed that, quote, Diane called constantly wanting me to get her out of the service or she was going to go AWOL, end quote. So he's saying <laughs> that she was like, get me out of here. Please, fuck, know this. Like, I'm not doing this. Get me out of here. <laughs> now, the truth is somewhere in the middle of all of those uh, reports and those theories, I still sit with the narcissistic side because I don't like Diane. <laughs> if you couldn't tell that already. <laughs> now, when Diane returned home, she was obviously now not working anymore. So there was even more arguments about money. And with a newborn baby in the house, you know, this was Steve's reason for not wanting a baby in the first place. And it was coming to fruition. Now, Diane claimed that around this time, Steve did start becoming physically abusive towards her. You know, it was his frustration with not being able to feed everyone or have a nice house to live in slash give their child. They now have a good life and it made him angry. Again, I'm not excusing Steve for these actions if they're true. I'm just saying I can see why it escalated to this. It's not okay in the slightest, but I can see the escalation. And again, this is all Diane's testimony. So we'll take it as you will, I suppose. <laughs> now, Diane would take Christiane and stay with her parents quite a lot. Uh, again, the fighting with Steve, she would leave, she would stay at their parents. But it seemed that Diane did love Christiane so much and Christiane loved Diane so much. They had a very beautiful relationship. This is coming from Diane. I will point out that Christiane is in infancy at this point. So just having someone feed her and change her shitty diapers was probably going to be good enough for her. But to Diane, it seemed that she finally got that person in her life that was devoted to her and loved her unconditionally as children often do with their parental figures. But yes, Diane would take Christiane, stay at her parents and then leave Christiane there while she goes and sorts everything out with Steve. And, you know, he would apologize, sort of shit out, say that he loved her and they would get back together every time. Diane claimed that it's because of Christiane that they would get back together. They've got a child now. They should stay happy families and work it out for the sake of their child and get back together. It did seem that Steve didn't actually want Diane to leave him. Like he actually did love her. I know that it sounds like he's being awful to her and he probably is, but in some weird twisted way, it actually seemed like Steve didn't think there was anyone else for him except Diane. He just didn't know how to express it in a healthy way. So it is quite interesting. But once they got back together, they fell into their old habits. There was no money. There would be arguments about the money and infidelity. And this would set Steve off. And it's just that vicious cycle that we hear about too often in cases of domestic violence relationships or even just unhappy marriages. Yep, not only did they continue to stay together, they continued to sleep together, which again, shockingly resulted in another pregnancy. And this time Diane kept it hidden from Steve until she couldn't hide it anymore, which that's a little bit sneaky sneaky there, Diane. I know that he wasn't on board with having children in the first place, but still, like, hmm, yeah, sneaky sneaky. Anyway, on 
The 10th of January 1976, Cheryl Lynn Downs was born, their second daughter. Now, after Cheryl Lynn was born, this seems to be a point where things go from bad to worse from here on out. So Steve would become even more frustrated with Diane, not just because of having another child that he didn't want or believe that they could look after, but Steve claimed that Diane became an inattentive mother and he was confused. She wanted these kids. She even hid her second pregnancy from Steve and that's how badly she wanted another child. But now that she had that, the kids were a burden to her. Diane stopped paying attention to them. She would leave them crying in their cribs. She wouldn't change their nappies as much as they should or feed them when they needed to be fed. Diane would also up and just leave the kids with Steve or with her parents with little to no warning. And sometimes she'd be gone for a couple of hours. Sometimes it'd be a day or two. She would just up and leave them. The kids also appeared unkempt. They were wearing dirty clothes or clothes that were too small or not appropriately dressed for the weather, but they also appeared malnourished. So I can see Steve's confusion, but I will acknowledge that this could be some postpartum depression going on here. It is hard to say without a diagnosis, but that it kind of sounds like that's what Diane's going through. Because I'm a bitch, I'm going to add my two cents into why I believe she's acting this way. It could be a mix of postpartum depression and her narcissism, because I think this is a slap in the face to Diane about the reality of having kids and being a narcissist. Now, like I mentioned earlier, kids take way more than they give. And as a parent, you have to accept that fact when you're having a baby. And that doesn't make parenting easier once you've accepted that fact. Parenting is the hardest job in the world, but you have to accept it that kids are going to take more than they can give, right? Diane has two daughters under the age of three. They need constant supervision, constant care, and she has to be the one to give that. Now, obviously that could be any parental figure or anyone being the guardian and sole provider of the kids, but argument's sake, we're talking about Diane. Diane has to be the one to give that to those kids, especially because she wanted them and Steve wasn't really on board with it. But she's now not receiving anything back for it. She's not getting any gold stars. There are no pat on the backs. Nothing. It is the ultimate sacrifice of being a parent. And that's living for someone else. So that doesn't really bode well for someone like Diane. You know, she loved being pregnant. And she loved getting the smiles from the lovely old ladies down at the grocery store. Or, you know, the questions and the tummy rubs and all that But she soon found out that parenting can be a very lonely venture with not a lot of rewards at first. As a parent myself, I know that. I know that once you have a child, you find out who your true friends are. You find out who's going to still invite you to things or who's not going to invite you and say, oh, but you've got a baby now and make you this completely different person. Even though, yes, your priorities in life have changed but you'd still like to think you're the same person as you were before. Maybe just hopefully matured up a bit <laughs> in some ways, in some ways not, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah, you just learn who your true friends are and who's going to stick around. Now, it could be a mix of postpartum depression and her narcissism. It could be just postpartum depression. We don't have a diagnosis or anything like that, but that's my little two cents on why I believe Diane started becoming an inattentive mother, according to Steve. 
So something else that probably didn't help Diane's attitude towards her kids after Cheryl Lynn was born was the fact that Cheryl Lynn was a colicky baby. You know, she was really fussy. She'd cry all the time and was incredibly difficult to soothe. And that's unfortunately the reality of having a baby with colic. Now, having a healthy baby is hard enough, but having one that is dealing with somewhat of a medical issue that does require extra attention and patience, Diane, yeah, this isn't what she signed up for. And that's not just me saying that. Diane would later say that Cheryl Lynn was a hassle, hard to deal with, and she wished she didn't have her. And that, oh, that makes my blood boil. That is a vile thing to say about your child. Now, I'm not being double standard. I know that Steve didn't want kids from the get-go, but this was before any of the babies were around. He didn't want kids. That is entirely acceptable for him to like think and feel he's allowed to do that but then they had kids he still stayed around he may not have been overly happy about it but he still stayed around and he was open from the get-go about not wanting kids diane wanted to have another baby she wanted kids she hid her pregnancy that's how badly she wanted kids and now because cheryl lynn had colic which was from no fault of her own diane just wished she didn't have her like oh To me, that's horrible, and I don't feel bad about being a bitch, as I've mentioned earlier. (laughs) It just makes me really, really angry. Now, Steve, he was going to finally do something about the fact that he kept having kids when he didn't want them, and he went to go get a vasectomy, right? He goes for the procedure, but he fails to return for the follow-up appointment where the doctors, they run their tests to see if the vasectomy was a success and that his sperm count had gone down. Ah, Steve decided he didn't need to do that. Of course it worked. (laughs) He was so sure with all of his medical expertise and training, which was like zero, that he didn't need to go to this follow-up appointment. To me, that's such like a manly thing to do. (laughs) It really is. But when Diane fell pregnant for the third time, yeah, he knew he fucked up not going to that appointment. However, because of how fussy Cheryl Lynn had been because of her colic, both Steve and Diane agreed to terminate this pregnancy. Now, I'm not going to get into the abortion debate. I'm not doing that here. But I do think that choosing to abort your child because of how your last one turned out, to me, that's a little bit of a cop-out reason. And I'll use Diane as an example as to why I think it's a bit of a cop-out reason. So if we look at Christiane and Cheryl Lynn, Diane had Christiane and by all accounts, it was great. She was a healthy baby. They got along well. Sweet. So she wanted another one because of how Christiane was. Now, all kids are different. Every child is different. You can't compare them. And once Diane found out that Cheryl Lynn was not like Christiane, she was like, oh shit. So now she's pregnant again and she's deciding that because of how Cheryl Lynn turned out, she didn't want the next child. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, you wanted the second one because of how good the first one was, but now you don't want the third one because of how the second one turned out. It doesn't make sense. And I do believe it is a bit of a cop-out reason. But anyway, she does go through with the abortion. She does later on say that she regrets it and says that she saw a six-week-old baby and what it looks like in the womb at this, like, anti-abortion booth at a local fair and realized that it wasn't mucus. This is what she says. Um, And the abortion took a huge toll on her. 
and her mental health. It got to the point that during her grieving stage of having the abortion, which there are many, many different ways to grieve, everyone processes it differently, and there is no like time frame on your grief period. Uh, what Diane started to do was she envisioned this baby that she didn't have, right? She decided that it was going to be a girl and she gave her a name. And Diane named her unborn baby Carrie and then would put Carrie into situations like, oh, how would Carrie react to this? Or do you think Carrie would be interested in this? And what career would Carrie have? And these are all very real stages of grief, absolutely. But she took a lot of her regret and guilt out on Steve and blamed him for the abortion. Now, there was no reports from Steve or Diane that he forced her into it. It did sound like they both talked about it and they both agreed to go through with it. So I get that it's quite a big decision. It's a big event. And obviously this is back in the late 1970s. So the procedure itself would be very different to how it's done now. But it's like, well, you agreed to go through with it. Don't take it out on him. It's hard to say. To me, it's... I don't know. Anyway, like I said uh, at the start of this, after Cheryl Lynn was born, things kind of went from bad to worse, and this didn't help with that either. So the Downs family feel like they need a bit of a change, and in 1978, so Cheryl Lynn is about two, Christiane's about four, and Diane and Steve would be about 23, 24 years old at this point, so they are a young family, but they move out to Mesa, Arizona, and Diane and Steve started working for a mobile home manufacturing company. It is also around this time that Steve decides to go for another vasectomy and he does the right thing by going to that follow-up appointment. So good job, Steve. Good on you, mate. However, this is much to Diane's disappointment. Now, to put into a timeline, it's been about a year, year and a half since the abortion and she is still grieving the loss of the baby they didn't have that's not to say that she should be over it. Grief has no time frame, but yeah, just giving you a timeline. And she is pissed and disappointed that Steve made a decision for himself, for his own body, and that he went through with it. Now, can you imagine if the shoe was on the other foot and it was Diane that didn't want any more kids and it was Diane that made a decision to go get her tubes tied and Steve was pissed and angry about that? Oh, can you imagine the outcry that that would have brought? Oh my goodness. Anyway, it's not Diane, it's Steve. He has done what he can to make sure that there isn't another baby coming along. And there's kind of two reasons why he went through with the vasectomy again. So, first off, yes, he didn't want kids early on in his marriage, but he got them and he's like, all right, fine, whatever, but no more. So he went for a vasectomy. Second reason, and I think this is a very commendable reason, he saw how the abortion took a huge toll on his wife's mental health, and he didn't want to put them in a position again where they had to decide whether they were going to keep or terminate another pregnancy. So yes, Steve, he sounded like a bit of a douchebag, but I think overall he's actually an, an okay kind of dude. I'm not excusing any of his shitty behavior, if any of it is true, because we only have Diane's word about it, but 
you know, he got forced into getting married young. He probably had to grow up faster than he would have liked. He had kids when he didn't want kids. He probably didn't have a lot of say in the relationship with Diane, and she probably wasn't the easiest of all partners, as we've kind of heard about. But he still goes through with a medical procedure to make sure that she doesn't have to have an abortion. And I think that kind of speaks volumes. So say what you will about Steve, form your own opinion about him, but I think he's an all right kind of dude. Anyway, Diane's pissed, as we've established, and she gives Steve an ultimatum. She tells him to get the vasectomy reversed or she will find someone to give her a baby. There's no in-between, no compromise, no negotiation. She will have another baby. So we're seeing this hot and cold. Her narcissism is showing through with this, right? Because it's like she's allowed to wish that she didn't have Cheryl Lynn and agree to have an abortion. But in the same breath, she's allowed to be pissed off at Steve because he made a decision for himself. And she's allowed to want and demand almost having another baby. And she doesn't care who gives it to her. Like, Diane, honey, that is not how life works. That is not how marriages and relationships work, especially when you're talking about a baby. Man, there is so much to consider and take into account. It is not all about you and what you want and how bad your baby fever is, right? You have to consider your partner. You have to consider the kids that you already have. Diane has two kids and it sounds like she's not paying attention to them and she's not looking after them. So why the fuck does she want a third? right? It's just infuriating because she's now angry and taking her frustration out on Steve for making a decision for himself because it didn't align with what she wanted. But Diane gets what Diane wants, right? And she's working on the assembly line at the manufacturing company and it is not too long before she's engaged in multiple affairs with various co-workers. So not only is she a bitch and a narcissist and probably not the best mother out there and sounds like a terrible partner, but she's now a cheater. And if there's one thing that I cannot stand, it is someone who cheats, especially if you're married and you've taken a vow of loyalty. You do not break that. If you have the ability to cheat, you have the ability to leave. I said it and I will continue to say it. But yes, back to the story. So yes, Diane is engaging in multiple affairs with various co-workers and not just any co-workers. So in a report that a clinical psychologist wrote that we'll talk about later on, he says, quote, Miss Downs picked five ugly younger men to seduce in order to have a child by one of them, end quote. Now, the, uh, the ClinSite quoted the word ugly from Diane herself. He didn't look at their photos and was like, damn girl, they ugly. <laughs> That's not what happened. But the fact that she described them as ugly younger men, and that's what she hunted down, that tells me she knew what she was doing when she was having these affairs. She can't do the whole, oh, we had drinks after work and one thing led to another and it was a mistake that I made five times with five different guys. No, she can't do that. She knew what she was doing. Why ugly? No idea. Fuck knows. I don't care. I don't want to know her logic. But one of these poor guys was 19-year-old co-worker Mark Sager. And after one lust-filled night, Diane fell pregnant to him. 
She was very fertile and every time that she wanted to get pregnant, she got pregnant. So any affair that she wanted to have and not be pregnant because she wanted to kind of scope the guy out, check him out. Is this what she really wants? Is this the guy who she wants to have a baby with? She knew when the best time in her menstrual cycle was to not fall pregnant. But she also knew the window where she had the highest chance of falling pregnant and she used that to get what she wanted and that was with Mark Sager. Mark was infatuated with Diane. He thought she was beautiful. He wanted her to divorce from Steve and marry him. Like that's how head over heels in love with her that he was. And she strung him along for ages, as we'll come to find out, and ultimately refused him. But she did get pregnant with his baby. She did tell Steve. She was straight up about it. She told him how she was sleeping around for these research purposes on who she wanted to fall pregnant with and all this kind of stuff like she was very open book about it and now she's saying that it worked she's fallen pregnant it's with this guy Mark Sager deal with it and Steve he said okay fine and he stayed with her he now has like an actual understandable reason to leave her she has broken their marriage vows. She is not being loyal to him and there is evidence and she's now pregnant with another man's baby and he's like, all right, fine, cool, I'll stay. <sighs> Steve, <laughs> I don't know whether to be like, go you Steve for stepping up or Steve, you're a dumbass. I think he's a bit of both <laughs> in all honesty, <laughs> but he does, he stays. Now, because Diane has fallen pregnant to a co-worker and people know she's been sleeping with other co-workers who aren't her husband, because remember, Steve works for the same company. She quits and leaves her job at the mobile home manufacturing company and she starts working for the US Postal Service just like her dad. And no doubt, she got the job through him. But she left because as the saying goes, don't Fuck your co-workers. Hey, don't fuck your co-workers. Don't dip your pen in the company's ink. <laughs> Even though, I suppose for Diane, she was fucking her co-worker first because, like I said, Steve also worked for the same company. Like, God, that makes it worse. But anyway, in December of 1979, Diane gives birth to her third child. And this is a son, Mark's son, remember that, but she has the audacity to name her child Stephen Daniel Downs. Steve Downs. Can you believe that? Like, that, that is a slap in the face to both Mark and Steve. They all know that Steve is not this child's biological father. Yet she is saying, I'm having my cake and eating it. I'm having another child. I don't care where I got it from, but I'm going to name it after my husband. Because no doubt... If Steve and Diane did have another child and it was a boy, she would have called him Steve Downs as well. No, like no doubt. But the fact that everyone knows, everyone involved knows that this child is not Steve's and she still does that. That's fucking foul, man. That is so low and makes me hate her even more. So I will be referring to Stephen Daniel Downs as Danny. That is the name that everyone called him. And it also clears up that confusion between Steve Downs, the husband, and now Steve Downs, the child. Cool? Cool. So Steve, the husband. Yes, he fully could have left 
and I don't think anyone would have blamed him, but he decided to stay and it was almost as if he was born to be a boy dad, right? From the moment that Danny was born, Steve loved him and fully accepted him as his own and really wanted to give the whole happy family a try. I mean, yes, he's already got two kids that, and that probably should have been the point where he wanted to try, but with Danny, he was like, yo, this is us set now. Yes, it was unorthodox how Danny came into the picture, but we're going to move past that and we're going to get on with our lives as a big happy family. Mark, Danny's biological father, he was involved with Danny, but only when Diane saw fit and only when she needed a babysitter. Now, as I've mentioned before, Diane loved being pregnant, but being a mother? Hmm, not so much. So she made sure that she wasn't one essentially. She fobbed her kids off to anyone who could babysit just so that she could be away from home as much as possible. So Danny would go to Mark, the girls would stay with Steve, or they'd all go to Diane's parents' house or her siblings' house, just anyone, so that she didn't have to deal with them. And if they couldn't get anyone to watch the kids, Steve and Diane would actually hire proper babysitters. Now, whether that was, you know, like teenagers around the neighborhood wanting some extra change or like babysitters from an agency I'm not 100% sure but these babysitters came into the Downs home and they saw how awful of a parent Diane was in fact one babysitter said and this absolutely breaks my heart so get ready one babysitter said quote if Danny wanted attention Diane would push him away But the worst thing was one time I caught Cheryl jumping on the bed and I said that was not permitted. I made her sit in the chair and think about it. Cheryl sat quietly for a while and then looked up and said, do you have a gun here? Of course not. Why? I want to shoot myself. My mum says I'm bad. End quote. Cheryl Lynn is about three, four years old at the time when she said this three, four years old and wanting to shoot herself and essentially end her own life. Now, of course, she probably doesn't fully understand the concept of ending her own life. But the fact that that's what a three, four year old is talking about. No way, man. That's not from one time being called bad. That is over and over and over and over again to the point where she's convinced herself that she is a bad child. Now, like I've said on many episodes before, kids are so perceptive and they pick up on everything. Even if they don't understand what an adult is talking about, they pick up on body language, they pick up on emotions, they pick up on the vibes in the room. And Cheryl Lynn knew she wasn't wanted. She knew that Diane preferred Christiane over her, even though Diane wasn't really around much or not being a very good mum. She knew that she preferred Christiane more. She was now seeing that Steve, her biological father, seemed to prefer and love Danny more. Now, of course, she very likely doesn't know that Danny was a product of an affair, but still, it's a new baby and I'm not being shown any love. Cheryl Lynn is the quintessential middle child. I'm just going to say that. It's disgusting how she was treated and the fact that a babysitter, imagine being that babysitter that's having that conversation with her. She turns around and says, do you have a gun? I want to shoot myself. Like a toddler, a baby saying this. Oh my God, my heart. That breaks my heart. It really, really does. But yes, back to the point. So yes, Diane loves being pregnant, but not being a mother. And it was around this time, and we're in the early 1980s, that Diane hears about something that's very uncommon in America at that time. And that 
is surrogacy. Being pregnant for someone who can't carry their own baby, but then giving the baby back afterwards. So for Diane, oh my goodness, this is the perfect solution to her narcissistic ways. Having the intention of being a pregnant woman, the smiles, the questions, the the tummy rubs, all of that stuff that she loved, but not having to deal with the aftermath, you know, the baby, the child, the life that she's grown in her womb for nine months. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'll just be pregnant and then not have to deal with that. So Diane starts applying to different agencies and these are agencies all over the country because like I said, surrogacy was really uncommon. There weren't that many clinics around and she's lying about numerous things on her applications because it's not just simply signing up. The potential candidate has to go through screenings and tests to see if they would be physically suitable to go through a tremendous event like pregnancy, but also be okay mentally with not having the baby afterwards. Now I commend anyone who is a surrogate oh my goodness giving your body for someone else's happiness putting your body through the changes and uncomfortable phases of pregnancy you know the morning sickness the weight change the amount of stress of a normal pregnancy plus the extra stress that this is someone else's baby that the parents the expecting parents are going to make sure that you're eating well, you're looking after yourself, that you're not going to do anything that's going to put their baby in harm's way. All that extra added stress to then not have the baby afterwards. Oh man, like that is a strength I don't know if I would have. Maybe, maybe for someone very close to me. I don't know if it's weird, but like I think I'd be a surrogate for my sister. She is pregnant right now, so... (laughs) There's no worry about that, but maybe also like my best friend, if need be. But like there are people out there just signing up on waitlist and are just willing. And to me, that's incredible. And I cannot commend those women enough. Like that's that's amazing. <laughs> when I think of surrogacy, I think of that scene with Phoebe from Friends. And if you haven't seen Friends, then sorry, spoiler, but honestly, where the fuck you been? But it's the scene where she's in the hospital after she's had the triplets for her brother and his wife, like she was the surrogate. And you know, through the whole pregnancy, she's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. But then when the babies are there, she's like, this is actually really hard. (laughs) I feel like that would also be the same for me. But anyway, yes, you need to go through checks and screenings. And it's not just the person wanting to be the surrogate, but it's also close family members. And in Diane's case, Steve needs to go through these screenings and tests as well. They are married. He has to be the one to deal with his wife being pregnant. And again, morning sickness, the mood swings, any potential uh, bed rest, you know, those type of things. They've got to make sure that Steve will keep Diane safe and therefore the baby safe. And that You know, the household is not some drug den and full of alcohol and, you know, an abusive relationship type thing. So he's got to go through uh, the screenings and tests as well. So in December of 1980, about a year after Danny was born, Diane and Steve meet with a psychiatrist in Kentucky. And this is a requirement of Diane becoming a surrogate. And like I said, she lied about numerous things on her application. She said that her and Steve are in a happy marriage, all was well, she's got a steady job. I mean, that's not exactly a lie because she was working for the US Postal Service, but whether it was steady, uh, that's 
who knows, but she also said like her kids are her everything and that she wouldn't want to live without them and she'd love to have another one, but recognize they can't afford another baby, but would love to make someone else's dream come true. Like this is what Diane's saying and it's all bullshit. She's not doing it for anyone else but herself. Like, let's be real. So after speaking with a psychiatrist, this psychiatrist deemed Diane to be neurotic and referred her to a clinical psychologist. Now, this clinic reported that, quote, Diane did not do well in areas where she had to demonstrate social cause and effect reasoning, attention span and concept formation. These findings were consistent with, but not absolutely diagnostic, of a major psychopathology, end quote. So basically saying she's got issues and she's a psycho essentially, but you can't fully diagnose her with that. It was actually this clinical psychologist who wrote about Diane picking the five ugly younger men. And this is the full quote because there are some interesting things in it as well. Quote, the couple's last child reportedly was the result of Miss Downs picking five ugly younger men to seduce in order to have a child by one of them. Mrs. Downs' conversation was effusive, immature, and frequently self-disparaging. This individual has poor ability to express anger in a modulated fashion and tends to have poor behavioral controls, end quote. It was also noted that Diane could turn her emotions on and off at a rapid rate, which reminds me of the Vampire Diaries with Klaus Michelson when he says, like, turn it off. So, I mean, that's very comforting to know that about Diane. Duh. (laughs) But obviously, she's rejected as an applicant for surrogacy. Now, the main worry was, was that she was not going to give the baby back when it was born. And I mean, that is the number one fear of uh, parents who are having a baby via surrogacy, right? That they don't give the baby back because... There are some cases where, you know, a baby is born via surrogacy and the surrogate has decided to keep the baby and it's a messy battle to try and get their baby back. It's not like, oh, nope, you are the surrogate, you have to give it back. There are a lot of messy laws and rules around it and depending on where you are in the world and like what state you're in, they have different rules. But there have been cases where the surrogate has been able to keep the baby. So that is like the number one fear of surrogacy, I feel, and that is the first box that has to be checked off. And in Diane's case, the medical professionals involved weren't comfortable with ticking that box. That's not the box they should have worried about, in my opinion, but they still rejected her from the surrogacy program. But Diane isn't a quitter, and she keeps applying to different agencies in different states. She pulls an Ed Kemper, and she learns what to say and what not to say to all these psychiatrists and clinics that she has to keep meeting. And in February of 1981, Diane meets with a psychiatrist in Arizona, and he diagnoses her with having histrionic personality disorder. Now, that is a mental health condition that is marked by unstable emotions, a distorted self-image, and an overwhelming desire to be noticed. People with histrionic personality disorder often behave dramatically or inappropriately to get attention. Mm. Yeah, that seems to describe Diane to a fucking T. However, despite this diagnosis, he accepts Diane as a candidate to be a surrogate mother. 
I hope he has his license taken off him because what a fuck up that was. Because with her new goal in life becoming a reality, Diane is even more neglectful of her own children. She's still sending them off to be with other people so she didn't have to. She's still stringing Mark Sager along just so that he can watch Danny. And if she can't have anyone watch the kids, she'll just leave them alone in the house. Having six-year-old Christiane in charge of five-year-old Cheryl Lynn and 15-month-old Danny. 15 months! Like, okay, argument's sake, it's just Christiane and Cheryl Lynn. They're six and five, they can play their dolls together. They'd be able to grab some juice out of the fridge if that was what was in there. But now you're adding a 15-month-old in there who will still need their diaper changed, who will still need to be fed possibly from a bottle. How can you put that responsibility onto a six-year-old? I can't trust my six-year-old alone in her room for five minutes without something going wrong or her needing me for something. Like, that's awful. It's also around this time, so we're in early of 1981, that Diane files for a divorce from Steve. And how this came about was Diane was doing some laundry and she found a piece of paper in Steve's pocket that had the number and address of a girl. And she was like, how dare he? That's funny. She was the one who admitted to cheating, was very open about it and had another man's baby, but she's the one to file for divorce because Steve possibly cheated. We don't know if he had seen this girl or if he actually went to her house or whatnot. I don't know that answer, but that's the reason why she files for a divorce. Fucking narcissist. Or as we've just learned, someone with histrionic personality disorder. And she's going to be a surrogate mother. Oh my god. Oh. It's not like she's hiding how she is. People are noticing. There's, she's being fucking diagnosed with all these issues. And yet people are just letting her be. And letting her do what she wants. It's ridiculous. So anyway, the divorce with Steve. Instead of going through a ugly custody battle and whatnot... Steve tells Diane to buy him out of the relationship. She can keep the house. She can keep the kids. She just has to pay him $5,000 for it. I'm not too sure how that all came about, but that seems to be what the settlement was. So Steve moves out. And not too long after, Mac Richmond moves in. And he was a co-worker. So, (laughs) dipping the pen in the company's ink again. But Mac Richmond was also going through a divorce himself. He moves in with his own two daughters, and so it's now a very full house, there's five kids in there, and the relationship between Diane and Mac lasts through the summer of 1981, summer fling, but then it all turns to shit. Mac later goes on to say that Diane treated her own kids as inferior, they weren't even allowed in the living room of their own home. She would call them all these like demeaning names and treated them like they were a burden, and she wasn't hiding this. You know, she wasn't trying to pretend to be this great mum to impress Mac. She was very open about how she was acting. And when she tried to pull that shit on Mac's daughters, he was like, nah, I'm out. So, you know, I suppose good on him. Lucky him. He, He missed out on what could have been a great relationship by the sounds of it. But this left Diane alone with her kids with no one there, which is not an ideal situation. While Christiane was at school, Cheryl would have to sit outside alone on the porch after kindy she'd have to walk herself home from kindy and the house would be locked who knew when diane would return home so Sherilyn would just sit on the porch and if she didn't do that she would often go to like 
the neighbor's house and beg for food or just company. Now, the neighbor that Cheryl Lynn would most often go to was a woman called Mary Ward. And Mary, after a couple of times of Cheryl Lynn going over, she decided to voice her concerns about Cheryl Lynn's well-being to Diane. Diane did not like that whatsoever. But according to Mary, Cheryl Lynn had told her that she was a bad little girl and if she didn't obey mummy, she deserved to be killed. Again, she's five years old and saying she deserves to be killed because her mum has told her she's so bad. This is still going on. Cheryl Lynn even tried to run out in front of John Ward's, Mary Ward's husband. She tried to run out in front of his car one night to try and kill herself. She's five years old and trying to end her own life. And when Mary like, she grabbed her out the way and said, why would you do that? Cheryl Lynn told her that nobody cared about her. God, that's, that doesn't break your heart. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what does. That's awful. Now, Mary Ward would start babysitting all three of the Downs children a lot more regularly after that, which, okay, amazing. This sounds like a positive uh, adult figure in their life who actually wants to show that she cares about them. But I will note that I didn't come across any reports being made to authorities about this. Like, no one coming to do a welfare check on the kids, no police coming to be involved with Diane, no nothing. And that kind of sends me back to uh, old What's-Her-Face, the, um, the neighbor to the Banerjewski kids, was it Phyllis? Yeah, Phyllis, who saw what was happening and didn't say anything. Other neighbors noticed that the Downs children would be playing outside with no shoes on, no coats on when it was cold, and they would often be visited by the Downs kids, well, obviously Christiane and Cheryl Lynn, because they're the older ones, coming around asking for food, and no one's saying anything to authorities or people who can actually do something about this. Uh, it's, again, that whole kind of, oh, I don't want to be nosy, but I'll, you know, I'll stick to the side. Mary's like, yeah, I'll watch them, but I don't want to cause any hassle, cause any trouble. It's like, fuck no, make a scene, especially when there's kids involved. Go and Go and save them. Please. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. So in September of 1981, Diane is accepted as a surrogate. There is a couple out there who have seen her profile and said, yep, we choose her. And she has to go to Kentucky for the insemination procedure. So Steve Downs, he is still local, the kid's dad. Well, Christiane and Cheryl Lynn's, but not Danny's. But he's still local and he takes care of the kid's while Diane goes to Kentucky, and she returns pregnant. In March of 1982, so a couple months later, Diane is featured in a Washington Post article about surrogacy. There was her and two or three other women. There was a bit of uh, exposure to surrogacy and, you know, letting women and letting parents know that this is an option. So there is the validation for Diane right there. Like, oh, she's in a newspaper article and Oh, what a woman she is sacrificing her body and comfort for someone else. Like, of course, these other women that were doing it, I hope they're doing it for the right reasons. And it is for the couples out there who can't have their own kids. But for Diane, this is just playing into her need for attention. Her histrionic personality disorder. Oh, funny that. My goodness. Then in May of 1982, 
the baby was due. So Diane travels back to Kentucky and she gives birth to a baby girl who the parents named Jennifer. And indeed, Diane did give the baby back to the parents. So the reason why she got uh, denied from the first lot of applications was not actually something they needed to be worried about. It was the narcissism. But hey, I'm not the professional here. They are. But Diane returns to Arizona $10,000 richer. Today, that would be about $31,620 US dollars or $49,630 New Zealand dollars. So it's a hefty amount of money and needless to say, 25-year-old Diane is ready to do it as soon as she can again because why not? Fuck, I'd love to be $49,000 richer, that's for sure. (laughs) But with her return to Arizona and Steve being out of the house, the kids' treatment just goes from bad to worse to worse to worse, especially against Cheryl Lynn and Diane's behavior escalates you know it starts off as emotional neglect to verbal abuse and now it's physical abuse the kids would be pinched spanked screamed at and even have their hair pulled and if anything broke or if anything went wrong in the house it was Cheryl Lynn's fault now we have seen possibly that Diane suffers with postpartum depression not that that excuses any of this behavior in the slightest but I'm just saying that possibly could be there also mixed with her neurotic personality, her psychopathology, whatever other disorders that Diane possibly has, all I know is that it is a living nightmare for these kids and no one is coming to save them. I wish to tell you that someone scooped in before anything else bad happened, but nobody did. With the $10,000 that Diane got from being a surrogate, she paid $5,000 to Steve to buy him out of the marriage, but she uses the rest to uh, sell the family house and then buy a trailer home. So the living environment is now degrading, you know, and I can't imagine that Diane put a lot of money into getting a nice trailer home. I imagine it would probably would have been quite basic. So again, it's just getting worse. Now in June of 1982, about a month after having baby Jennifer via surrogacy, Diane thinks that she needs to further her education, add that to her resume or her application to make her profile more appealing to couples who are wanting to baby so that they'll pick her. Not that her IQ level will do anything to the baby that she might carry, but I get it. It does make her look better on paper, but uh, annoying. So Diane starts attending classes at Mesa Community College. And get this. Diane writes an essay about child abuse. Yeah, child abuse. She says, quote, Not only does it destroy the lives of our children, but it usually brings terror into the lives of our grandchildren. End quote. I will just say now, this isn't Diane recognizing her wrongs and she's going to turn her life around at this point. This is her blaming her parents for her abusing her own children. Obviously, she doesn't say in her essay that she abuses her kids, but I'm going to read you a little bit of what she says, and you'll see that she is trying to shift the blame from her being the abuser to the fact that it's her parents' fault. Like, I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but yeah, listen to this. In her essay, she goes on to say, quote, Abused children develop different personalities depending on the type of abuse they receive and the amount of abuse they must endure. The personalities developed in abused children stay with them all of their lives. 
They may receive consoling or some form of help which turns the children around, but no one can take away the scars and pain inflicted on an innocent child forced to submit to mistreatment. It will ultimately affect the child's life as an adult. Then when the scarred child turned adult has children of his or her own, these children are usually abused in some way or another by their parents. I wish we could stop this vicious cycle. If we could only take a whole generation and stop child abuse, we could wipe out the plague. Generation after generation, the abuse continues. If you abuse your child, he or she will no doubt abuse your grandchildren. End quote. So you see how she's saying like, fuck you, mum and dad, you abuse me, so I'm abusing your grandchildren. Not, I'm abusing my kids, my kids, I'm abusing your grandchildren. And she wrote an essay on that. While her kids are at home shit scared of her and being completely mistreated by her. So isn't that fascinating? Far out. The, and that's ballsy of her to write about that when she knows what she's doing. So in between being a candidate for surrogacy and her college classes, Diane is trying to get the full college experience, if you get my drift, she is having affairs one after the other, and most of the time she's engaging in sexual intercourse with married men, to which I say, like, shame on those guys as well. I'm not being double standard. It takes two to tango, so shame on them. But there is absolutely nothing stopping Diane. It's almost as if she needs sex like she needs oxygen at this point. Like, she is just going at it. Now, Cal Powell was one of her sad things, and he said that Diane was intelligent, but a borderline psycho. <laughs> and he left Diane because he wasn't keen on, quote, sexually aggressive women, end quote. So just to uh, give you a little insider of what Diane was into in the bedroom, uh, Jack Lenter, who studied at the Mesa Community College, was one of Diane's flings who lasted about three weeks. But then Diane meets Robert Nick, Knickerbocker and he was actually a postal worker he wasn't at the community college but again kind of like a co-worker because she was doing odd jobs at the postal service not full-time because she was community classes and her kids but she did still work there and there was something about Robert Knickerbocker that completely took over Diane he was different than the rest and she actually became obsessed with him Robert was married. In fact, he was on his second marriage, and even though things were shaky with him and his wife, Charlene, Robert refused to leave Charlene, but he didn't refuse Diane either. Now, like I said, Diane was obsessed with Robert Knickerbocker. Sorry, I love that last name, Knickerbocker. Uh, she was obsessed with him, and she tried to change their status from an affair to a relationship. But Robert wasn't keen on that. He was still married, but he said, quote, I wouldn't be with her if the children were around. It was an affair. It didn't seem right, end quote. So that's just saying that Diane is saying, yeah, come over to my trailer home. Ha ha ha, sexy. And like her kids would be there. And he's like, no, no, no. Affairs are meant to be like secret. <laughs> and he's saying it's an affair. It didn't seem right. To which I say, affairs aren't right. Robert and it's probably the guilt talking to you and that's probably why you're also looking for an excuse and you know saying oh the kids are around this doesn't feel right of course it doesn't fucking feel right 
Now, Robert doesn't have any kids of his own, and he got a vasectomy as well to make sure of that. But Diane still pursued him and wanted more than just an affair with him. She kind of hoped that if she caught him in her spidery trap, she would convince him to get his vasectomy reversed, or she would just continue being a surrogate, as that seemed to, I don't know, solve her issues with being a mother, because she didn't want to be one anyway, but she had kids. Ugh. Now, Charlene, Robert's wife, she knew something was up, and she suspected of Robert having an affair, but didn't know who it was with, until there was an annual picnic for the postal workers, and this is where she meets Diane for the first time, and from that point on, she knew that it was Diane that Robert was seeing. You know, she saw the glances at Robert, the comments, the laughter at everything that he said, and like, the arm slaps, the arm touches. You can see the scene. She's sitting there, she's laughing at everything she says, and like, oh, Robert, and like, arm on the shoulder, cheeky feel of the bicep. Yeah, you can see that. <laughs> and once Charlene saw that, she knew it was Diane. But interestingly, just before the annual picnic, Diane seemed to rekindle with Steve Downs. And he got back together. They got back together. And so he was also there at the picnic, but it was all a ruse. It was all for show. And a couple of days after the picnic, Diane broke up with Steve again. They lasted all of a week. So it was clearly an ulterior motive to be together. Diane obviously just wanted someone there so that it wasn't obvious that she was having an affair with Robert, but it was still blatantly obvious. But like I said, Steve, he's staying local and he looks after the kids while Diane picks up more hours of studying, working, sleeping around. But she also does get scheduled for a second surrogacy. Now, just before she flies off to Kentucky for the insemination procedure, she gets a checkup at the gynecologist and she's told that she has contracted an STD. Diane accuses Robert of giving that to her, but the math isn't in Diane's favor. Okay, Robert claims, but he says that he's only been with his first wife, his second wife, Charlene, and Diane. So whether that's true or not, we don't know. But while that doesn't make it impossible for Diane to have contracted an STD for him, it doesn't make it likely because Diane has been with at least nine men that we know of. So there's Steve, the five ugly younger guys, <laughs> Cal Powell, Jack Linter, and now Robert Knickerbocker. So yeah, like I said, it's not impossible that she didn't catch it from Robert, but the probability is a lot lower. Now, Diane knows that Robert will have to admit the truth to Charlene that he's been having an affair because they'll have to go and get tested and treated in case they did pick up an STD. And Diane is happy as fuck about this because she expects that Charlene will break off the marriage from hearing the truth. So Diane flies to Kentucky, super happy, super ecstatic, thinking that Robert will be a single man when she returns home. Charlene is not stupid. She's a badass bitch. She knows that this is what Diane wants. So she stays with Robert. They go and get tested and treated and they get the all clear and she tells Robert that she will stay with him, they'll work on their marriage, but he has to stop seeing Diane. So this is what Robert does. Like I said, Charlene is a bad bitch who won't let some fucking psycho steal her man. And I'm kind of here for it. 
There's a lot of drama, which I'm not here for. And honestly, it sounds like a lot of admin, but I love how Charlene's like, nah, no, 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 no. <laughs> we'll figure this out. I'm not letting her win. So when Diane returns from Kentucky, she's expecting Robert to be there. She is letting him know that she's returning, but Steve is the one to pick her up from the airport, not Robert, and Diane flies into an absolute rage. She's in the car, she's like grumpy, and she's mad, she's complaining about this, complaining about that. Steve's there trying to reconcile with Diane and saying like, for the sake of the kids, let's be a happy family. Like, Steve, <laughs> you can do so much better. But I get what he's doing about the kids. I, I understand that. And, and maybe he is starting to see some issues, like with Cheryl Lynn. And he's like, okay, I need to be back in the picture a bit more. But, like, oh, bless him. <laughs> but this is not Diane's plan. And, of course, it has to be her way. There is no other option. So, thinking that she's lost Robert and that it's the end of the world, when Steve drops her off at the trailer home that she's living in, Diane grabs a .22 pistol, one that she actually bought for Steve as a Christmas present a couple of years back, but she kept it after the divorce. Diane runs into the trailer home, she's got the pistol, Steve knows she's got the pistol, and she locks herself in the bathroom and she's saying that she's going to kill herself, she's threatening suicide. Steve was doing everything he could to get her to open the bathroom door and he hears a shot being fired. Steve managed to break the door down to see Diane sitting on the floor pointing the gun at him. She shot a bullet into the floor and that's what the um, the gunshot was. She's sitting on the floor. She's pointing the gun at Steve and she said, quote, I can't kill myself, Steve, but I can kill you, end quote. Completely unnecessary to be taking her anger out and threatening his life, but Steve manages to overpower Diane and gets the gun off her and takes it home with him. But now... Now that Diane has realized that she's so narcissistic she can't even fucking kill herself, not that she should and I shouldn't have said it like that, but the reason why she can't kill herself is because she thinks she's too important and that she thinks too highly of herself. But now she was more determined than ever to get Robert and she was able to get back in his life. I mean, they did work at the same postal office, but fucking Robert gave in and the two of them resumed their affair. I will also note that Diane did not get treatment for her STD because she is a selfish bitch. Now, to try and get even more attention for herself, as if she doesn't have enough already, in October of 1982, a mysterious fire breaks out in Diane's trailer home. Now, there was an arson investigation, and they determined the fire to have been caused by like an electrical short in Diane's bedroom, now, Diane's there, she's, oh, poor me, victim me. She's feigning fear into Robert's arms, and he questions her about it. He's like, what happened? No, what really happened? She played the victim perfectly for about five seconds and then began laughing and said that she worked this whole plan out with Steve, that he was going to set the whole trailer ablaze, but, oh, Steve messed up and it only stayed in the bedroom. But why the fuck would Steve want to burn down her trailer home? That makes no sense. Because if there was going to be some sort of insurance payout, I don't know, that would go to Diane, not Steve. Like, it doesn't make sense. But Robert saw Diane's eyes, like crazy eyes. Does he leave? Fuck no. But the reason why he doesn't leave is because Charlene decides she's had enough and she packs up and leaves Robert. Because if he's mad enough to stay with some crazy bitch, then she's better off without him. 
I agree. (laughs) I feel like some people are just not worth the drama. Now, instead of taking the win, she's got Robert. Charlene doesn't want him. They're not in an official relationship, but she's got him back in her grasp. Diane taunts Charlene, and this is just an evil thing to do to another woman. Diane finds Charlene's phone number. She calls her multiple times a day and then just hangs up like a fucking child. Or she'll leave messages saying like, tell Robert this. Oh wait, I forgot you guys aren't together anymore. Again, immature, fucking childish. She then sends Charlene a letter saying that Robert was planning to file for a divorce. This is not true. And Robert found out about that. And he was like, yeah, no, that's, you're taking this way too far. Like, how dare you? He breaks it off with Diane yet again, and he reconciles with Charlene. Now, you might be wondering, where are the kids at? I haven't really mentioned too much about them at this point, and that's because I have no fucking clue where they are. They're going between Diane, Steve, Mark, Diane's parents, siblings, fucking anyone who would take them at this point. But don't forget that whenever they are with Diane, it is hell, and no one's doing anything about it. So in the January of 1983, Diane decides that instead of applying to all these agencies to be a surrogate candidate, she's going to cut out the middleman and her and her sister Kathy are going to open their own surrogate company in Arizona called Arizona Surrogate Parenting. (laughs) But she still remains like a candidate for other states and whatnot and she's like, I'll stay on these lists until our company gets like a clientele or a wait list established. So that's like the big plan to get her company off the ground. Now, if you remember, she flew to Kentucky to receive the insemination back in September of 1982, but it didn't stick. So something went wrong with um, Diane's menstrual cycle there because she's usually quite in tune with it, but there's probably stress and other factors. There could also be the actual um, like egg and sperm going in. There might have been something wrong with that. No idea why, but it didn't stick. So in February of 1983, she had to go back for another round. But before she goes, someone decides to foil her plan. And who would it be but Charlene? (laughs) Honestly, this is starting to feel like a sitcom. Charlene contacts the Kentucky Clinic and tells them all about Diane's own surrogate company and the STD that she didn't get treated, and also just her behavior in general. So Diane becomes, quote, persona non grata, end quote, or an unwelcome person at the Kentucky Clinic, and then her own company folds as well. (laughs) So Diane is really in the shits now, and it's all Charlene's fault. And like that is... Go Charlene. Again, it's drama, it's unnecessary admin, and who the fuck has the energy for it? But yeah, you go Charlene. (laughs) Now, somehow, Diane gets Robert in her grasp again. Fuck sakes, Robert. I can tell you right now, she does not have beer coming out of her tits. No one does. But he still goes back to her. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she does have beer coming out of her tits. I don't know, but far out. Diane gets Robert back and she demands that he makes a choice. It's either Diane or Charlene. To which Robert picks Charlene and his reasoning is he doesn't want to be a dad. He doesn't want kids. That's not for him. That's not the lifestyle he wants. Charlene obviously doesn't want kids either. So that's why they work when they do or that's why they are still together when they are. But it's because Diane wants to be pregnant and already has kids. He's not into it. 
He's like, yo, I just want to bang and then go. Let's just boink a doink and get out of here. And she's like, no, Robert, I want more. But he still goes back. I don't get it. I fucking, I don't get it. So she's not handling the rejection very well. And Diane arranges her mail route with the US Postal Service to make sure that Charlene's house is on her mail route. So every time she goes past, she pounds on the door. She's still making phone calls. She's screaming at Charlene. She harasses her. She threatens her life and she makes her life a living nightmare as well. Something happened and I believe that someone talked some sense. I'm guessing that Diane's dad talked some sense into Diane because she decides to transfer to the U.S. Postal Service office in Springfield, Oregon. Now, Oregon is about 20 hours away from Arizona, and that's where Wesley and Willardine, her parents, are. They've moved up there. So that's why I feel like maybe her dad was like, stop it. Cut your shit and just move up here. Like, we'll get you a job, we'll get you sorted, just move up here. So she puts in a transfer, it gets accepted, and a week before she's set to move to Oregon, the lease on... I think maybe the trailer home or wherever they're living, the lease on where she's living has ended. And so for a week, she and the kids were going to be homeless. And who decides to be the hero and take them in? But Robert fucking Knickerbocker. He just wants a last hurrah with her before she goes. And of course, moving in, her and the kids moving in with Robert, this just sends Diane back to being madly in love and seeing this whole beautiful future with him that she tries to cancel the transfer request to Oregon. That's denied. They've got everything sorted. They're just waiting for her to get there. But why would Robert offer that? <laughs> like, why didn't Steve offer that? Why? Oh, my goodness. Like, really? Really, Robert? In the week that Diane and the kids were living with Robert, she convinced him to get a matching fucking tattoo with her. See, Diane already had a rose on her back, and she convinced Robert to get a rose as well, which he does. She then tried to get him to tattoo her name under the rose, and thank God he was smart enough to say, yeah, no. He's still got a tattoo. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? If he still has that, I don't know if he's alive still or not, but can you imagine (laughs) if he still has that tattoo, and every time he looks at it, oh goodness gracious. So, even though they're doing all that and she's now seeing this beautiful life that they can have together, he still denies going any further with her. Like this whole drama is affecting everyone around them. And it got to the point that Wesley, so not only has he said to Diane, like move the fuck up to Oregon, he actually spoke to Robert. Papa Wesley got involved again He spoke to Robert and he tried to convince him to move to Oregon with Diane. And I imagine it was like, please just do it so that she can stop acting like a crazy psycho bitch. (laughs) Like, I can't see any other reason why Wesley would try and convince Robert otherwise. Like, he's just like, please just give her what she wants and she'll stop. Because I can imagine everyone is done with her shit. Now, Robert said, quote, I realized I did not love Diane enough to divorce my wife and give up my job at the post office and move to Oregon, end quote. And he told Wesley he was not going to do it. So the night before Diane left for Oregon, she, of course, is at Robert's house and she makes a point to leave the .38 pistol and a target pistol visible. And whether that was in the bedroom or like her suitcase or the car, I'm not too sure where it was. There were conflicting reports. But she made sure that these guns were visible enough for Robert to see 
but like slightly hidden, but at the same time not hidden. So like a little pick me moment, a little like desperate for attention, like, oh, you weren't meant to see those, but he was totally meant to see them. You know what I mean? And knowing full well that Robert has seen the guns the next morning, she says goodbye, but is secretly and not so secretly expecting Robert to just drive and follow her to Oregon to make sure she doesn't do anything to herself because of the guns. Like, it's so desperate. It's disgusting. Robert doesn't go to Oregon and he's relieved that she's gone. The phone calls, the letters, the taunts, they do not stop. But to Robert, he's like, well, fuck, at least she's not five minutes down the road anymore. And he's like, I'll I'll deal with that side. I just don't want to see her again. So Diane and her kids, they moved to the city of Cottage Grove in Oregon, which is the typical small town type of place. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone's safe. Doors unlocked. That kind of yada yada. We're going to skip ahead about eight weeks now to the afternoon of May 19th on 1983. So about eight weeks since Diane and the kids have moved to Oregon. Diane finished her shift around 3 p.m. She goes to pick up Christiane and Sherilyn from school and she takes them around to her parents' house because they live out there now. Now, Wesley had made a name for himself in this community as the postal master and he's really respected in that community. Diane takes the girls round to her parents' house because Willardine looks after Danny full-time, basically, because he's still really young at this point. Now, normally, they would all have dinner together, but on this particular day, Wesley and Willardine had a prior engagement that evening, so Diane pretty much just popped in for a cup of tea and then took the kids home for dinner. After dinner, Diane decided to get the kids in the car and they drove round to a friend's house. Now, this friend was a woman called Heather Plaud, who lived on a farm and, you know, she had a couple of animals and whatnot, but she lived in a neighboring town called Marcola, and that's about about a half hour drive from where Diane lived, and it was already getting kind of late, so this was a really odd thing that Diane did. But the reason why she went to go see her friend Heather was she wanted to show Heather a newspaper clipping about horses that could be adopted for free. Because Heather had had a conversation with Diane, um, you know, previously about wanting to get some horses or whatnot. But she saw this paper clipping and thought, I've got to show Heather this. Heather didn't have a landline, so Diane couldn't just call her up. So the best solution that Diane could come up with was to go right that instant to show Heather this article. They turn up, Heather's like, what the fuck? Okay. But she listens to Diane and she, you know, reads the article, but she tells Diane that they actually managed to get a good deal on a horse. So they weren't actually looking anymore. This is all okay. This is all like, uh, amicable. There's no like, Oh, we've already got horses or anything. It's all just like, okay, this is weird for you to turn up at this time of night with your three young kids, but thanks, but no thanks. Diane and her kids stayed for about 20, 30 minutes before they headed on home. But it's about 20 to 10, 9.40 p.m. at this point. It's really fucking late. So just before 10.30 p.m., nurses at the Mackenzie Williamette Hospital in Springfield, Oregon, they're just going about their business. They're tending to their patients, paperwork, so much paperwork. When they hear what sounds like someone holding down their car horn outside of the emergency department entrance, Two nurses, Shelby Day and Rosie Martin, they rush to the car and they find a pale blonde-haired woman in the front seat. When they say what's going on, 
This woman says, quote, somebody just shot my kids, end quote. Rosie Martin, one of the nurses, she opens the passenger door and she pulls the seat forward. It's a two-door car. She pulls the seat forward to see a young girl with long brown hair and a blood-soaked shirt slumped over the back seat. She picks this girl up, despite being heavily pregnant herself, she picks this girl up and carries her inside and calls for more help. Shelby gets the blonde-haired woman out of the car and she's like trying to pull the driver's seat forward as she had seen a, quote, yellow-haired boy, hardly more than a toddler, end quote, also in the back seat, who was gasping for air and crying weakly. Now, the driver, the woman, she tells the nurse how to pull the seat forward, but before she can get in, Dr. John Mackey, he was one of the doctors working that shift, he was there to see how he could help after he heard Rosie like saying, we need help, we need help, there's something going on. So he comes out, and as soon as Shelby pulls the seat forward, he reaches in there and he grabs the boy. Dr. Mackey also sees that there was a third child in the car on the floor of the front seat where Rosie had pulled the seat forward already. Now, he thought that Shelby, the nurse, already knew this, so he didn't say anything. And it wasn't until he was inside with the toddler boy, and then Shelby was about to follow him, that the driver of the car, this woman, was like, no, 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 and pointed to the third child in the car, telling the nurse that she hadn't moved at all. Shelby could not believe what on earth was going on. Three children shot. This did not happen in this town. So Shelby raced the third child inside the emergency department where the doctors, nurses, any of the free hands were helping getting these kids into beds, assessing on what the damage was and where to start. Now, if you haven't guessed it by now, because I'm trying to be a great storyteller, this was Diane, Christiane, Cheryl Lynn and Stephen Danny Downs that had caused quite the commotion at the Mackenzie Williamette Hospital that night. One child had died. One child was stable, but at risk of paralysis. And the other child was fighting blood loss, heart stoppages and strokes. And the only question on all of the staff's mind at that point was who on God's earth could have aimed a pistol at three small children and pulled the trigger. And that, my lovely listeners, is where we're going to be leaving this case this week. I'm sorry, there is so much more to get through. We're already about to hit two hours long on this episode. And honestly, I didn't think this was going to be a multi-parter, but I found so much out about Diane's story that I felt that it was important to share that we have a true idea and all the facts about her behavior and her story. So we're going to leave it here. The kids have turned up at the hospital something's happened something has gone horribly wrong and next week we will talk about the children's injuries the investigation the shaggy-haired man the interviews and the witness that revealed everything so thank you for joining me I do apologize this episode is out quite late um if the editing goes well I should be able to get it out early this week that Instead of on Sunday, I'll try and get it out a little bit earlier. But I'm very sorry for the cliffhanger. Until next time, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you guys next time for the completion of part two. That's why it's called part two-ish, and not just part two. 
I will catch you guys next time right here at Coffee and Crime. Bye.